Okay, well, it's good to be back. Good to see everybody. It's um, always uh, always good to be to come back and be back in a my comfortable pulpit. Uh, announcements: We will not be having the April men's prayer breakfast because it would fall on the April thirteenth, which is when we're having our annual church picnic out at Orlando Solaces. So we'll be having sign-up sheets and everything posted in the fellowship hall pretty soon. And also, we need Sunday school teachers. We are in need of, uh, I don't know, more than one, because it's in the plural. And if you would like to participate in this, be involved in communicating uh, the Bible to our young people, please see Mark Friedrich or Cheryl Jeffries. That's it for, for the announcements. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, as usual, we'll make sure we are spiritually cleansed, prepared to study the word. If necessary, that means that we confess sin simply through silent prayer, uh, admitting our sins to God and recognizing that Christ has paid the penalty for every sin, but through confession we are cleansed and forgiven of all sins. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer before I open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, what a great privilege it is to understand your grace, your goodness, the gospel, all that has been provided for us in Christ. Father, we pray that as we study tonight that you will continue to enlighten us as to the truth of your word, that we may build upon that which we have learned previously and continue to press on to spiritual maturity. Father, we pray that you would be glorified by our study by our desire to uh, apply your word and to uh, assimilate that into our lives. And Father, we continue also to pray for our nation, for our leaders, both at the local level all the way up to the federal level. And we pray that you would uh, open eyes to the truth. There are so many who are blinded. They're blinded by their own sin. They're blinded by Satan. They're blinded by uh, the distractions of the world. And Father, we pray that you would open their eyes to truth, that there would be placed in the presence of our, our influential leaders, those who can give them divine viewpoint, help them to understand the issues from an eternal biblical perspective, and that we may continue to have the liberty and the freedom that we have enjoyed, and that some of the onerous and egregious regulations and legislations that have been put upon us encroaching on our liberty would be taken away and turned back. And we pray that you would be so gracious to us as to give us uh, more years of freedom and liberty in this nation. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, since I have just returned from being out of town, I want to uh, talk a little bit about the trip. Two things were accomplished. First of all, I spoke at Tucson Bible Church. John Hintz is the pastor there, and as most of you know, I'm sure John and I have been friends since I was nine years old and he was 19 years old. That's a, that's a long time. Few of us have friends that that we have known or are still involved with for that many years, and, of course, way back then, neither one of us had a clue what either one of us would be doing. Either we didn't know what each of us, on our, in, our, in terms of ourselves, what we would do or what the other one would do. And yet we have been involved. I was in a high school, Monday night high school, 
Bible study at his apartment down on Wirt and Westview when I was in high school. That was a few days ago. So anyway, that went really well, and I think we're going to get the, I don't know if Barb has them. I saw Barb, there you are. I don't know if you've got the audios yet. We need to get the audio from, from there, and we'll put those up. I taught on foreknowledge, election, and predestination. The more I teach on that, the more it gets honed down and the better it gets. So you may want, if you're still confused after our Sunday morning uh, studies in Ephesians, then you might want to listen to that. Maybe it'll clear something up. Following Tucson, we went to Washington, D.C. That's, uh, that's an all-day trip, just about. And we went to APAC, went to the annual National Policy Conference for APAC. APAC stands for the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee. It is not a PAC. It is, in terms of a political action committee, it is a public affairs committee. Its purpose is uh, is to influence through education our legislators, so that we continue to have a strong relationship with Israel, that the United States has a strong relationship with Israel, despite the claims of some of those who are critics and those who are anti-Semitic in the government. It is not an organization that uh, spends any money whatsoever on any political races or candidates. It is bipartisan, which I think is threatened today. And sometimes I I have heard people comment that, well, the one party is drifting so far to the left that this isn't going to last much longer. I will warn you, the day Israel becomes a partisan issue, associated with one party or the other, is the day we lose our freedom. Think about that. Because once Israel, that issue of supporting Israel, is aligned with one political party, then a change in the administration at that point will end the relationship with Israel, and we as a nation will no longer be supporting Israel. It is critical to maintain that, and APAC leadership has had a lot of foresight in planning to and preparing to uh, to go to progressives, to go to those who are on the far left, who are not supportive of Israel, and to do what they can to reach them, to educate them, to take them to Israel, to have them walk on the grounds in Israel to see what the situation is so that they can see for themselves that the propaganda that they hear is not correct, that the Palestinian narrative is completely false. And that is an important function of, of APAC. Just one, they take every freshman or try to take every freshman congressman to Israel, that's quite a load because we got over a hundred, little over a hundred new freshman representatives this last year. So that means taking a lot of people there. That costs a lot of money, but it is well worthwhile. I had a very liberal leftist representative here in Houston just about poke a hole in my chest about ten years ago. He was in his third term in Congress, I think, at that time and had just returned from his first trip to Israel, and he had talked already. It was at a luncheon. Afterwards, I went up to uh, express my uh, uh, gratitude for what he had said, and he started poking me in the chest, saying, you know there are people over in the Middle East who want to kill us just because we're Americans. It doesn't matter what our politics are. They want to kill us. And I wanted to say, well... I'm glad you finally woke up. But I said, well, that's true. That's true. I'm I'm glad you've come to understand that. So we have to be a little diplomatic. But that's what happens is if you approach people in the right way with right information, then there are those who will, uh, will change their views. So don't be thinking that it's all... Uh, 
it's all wasted effort and that it's leading to any kind of a defeat. But what I wanted to do briefly before we get into our Bible class tonight is to talk a little bit about why I go to APAC. And I'm hoping by saying this that maybe it will encourage some to uh, take the time maybe to attend at some point or to get more involved uh, in one way or another. I would say that the first reason that I am involved and that I go to APAC is for their ultimate goal. The purpose of having the policy conference isn't the breakout sessions. It isn't uh, learning all about the new whiz-bang technology that comes out of Israel, but it is ultimately to go to Capitol Hill on Tuesday and to lobby our congressmen, our members of Congress, in terms of specific legislation that is before the House or the Senate. The U.S.-Israel alliance is one that is, first of all, biblically important, but second, it is strategically necessary to the preservation of freedom and liberty in the world. It, Israel, stands at the forefront. They are surrounded by uh, many evil neighbors who would seek to bring complete darkness into the world. They are standing at the front lines. And we must remember as believers, as Christians, that God's covenant with Israel is still in effect. It's an everlasting, unconditional covenant as stated in Scripture, that those who bless Israel, God will bless, and those who curse Israel, those who treat Israel lightly, God will judge harshly. And that is fundamentally why we support Israel. And what the question, though, that we all should ask is, how do I support Israel? For most of us, we support Israel because we say we vote for candidates who are supportive of a strong U.S.-Israel alliance. And the emphasis is on the U.S. side of that equation. There are those who have claimed that, that those who support APAC and support the APAC agenda and support Israel have a dual loyalty. That is far, far from the truth. We support a strong U.S.-Israel relationship just as we support a strong U.S.-British alliance because it's good for the United States. We benefit from those alliances, and we benefit very much from that. We benefit in a lot of ways. Uh, The primary way I think we benefit from Israel is in the realm of technology. Now, when I use the word technology, probably a lot of you are thinking like in terms of a computer, but it's related to that. We have medical technology, the medical breakthroughs that have come out of Israel over the last uh, 15 or 20 years have truly changed the practice of medicine all over the world. Uh, Just one example is that they've miniaturized cameras into a pill. You can swallow the pill and they'll take a picture of everything from, uh, from your throat all the way down and all the way out and you can get a good assessment of how you are doing various various ways, but they're doing uh, things with stem cell research, and they're doing things with with just the medical technology of imaging and scanning and all of these kinds of things that is uh, far beyond anything that uh, that I can explain. Last summer, when I was at this event at Temple Shalom in Dallas, there was a uh, company there in conjunction with Technion and some some uh, medical team, and and they have a way, and they've created or invented a machine where they can image a person's brain in such a way that if they need to go in and do surgery, that they can go in. It's like virtual reality. You put on your helmet, and you can see everything that's going on inside of the brain. And there was a doctor there who spoke, and when he used this technology, he went to the patient explained, I'm not going to do what I thought I would do. Once I got in and I looked inside your brain using this technology, I realized that the, the uh, surgical procedure I was going to do 
uh, would not work. And But this is what we're going to do, and explained it to him, got his permission, and the uh, surgery was a success. So that's just one thing. Security. You have security on your computers. When you put in a credit card in PayPal, that is secured through an Israeli company that developed the security for, for PayPal. We have military security. We, we often talk about foreign aid packages to other companies, other countries. But with Israel, it's more of an investment. For example, when we have, uh, for example, there's a package before uh, Congress for $3 billion in aid to Israel plus uh, $500 million minimum of, of shared missile technology. When, when, for example, Lockheed sells F-16s or F-35s to Israel, that Israel breaks down all the computer uh, software and programs and everything, rebuilds it, makes it better, stronger, and then it comes back to Lockheed. So this is an investment. Eighty percent of what we give Israel in terms of foreign aid has to be spent in the United States on uh, getting these things uh, built and developed for them. Uh, just the general hardware and software technology, the chips that you have in your in your laptop uh, were developed in uh, branches. All of the major uh, tech companies have R&D branches in Israel, and they develop these things there. In agriculture, there's tremendous advancements uh, in agriculture and in just irrigation. They have, uh, I've seen at the uh, Volcani Institute, which is the R&D lab for their Department of Agriculture, where they have irrigation, drip irrigation for each individual plant, and each individual plant has a chip, and that chip tells the irrigation system exactly when it needs water and how much water it needs. And so this has uh, tremendous benefits. They're turning the desert into... um, into fields of green vineyards and uh, many other things are, are planted that way. And water technology, their ability to convert uh, sa- uh, salt water into fresh water is phenomenal. And water is going to be the biggest challenge, not only in the United States, but in the world over the coming decades. So they've done tremendous uh, stuff there. So that is a primary reason to be involved. The second reason to be involved is it's part of our responsibility as U.S. citizens to be involved in government. We should be involved in informing and educating and challenging our elected representatives. You may not know this, you may have suspected this, but there are elected representatives in Congress who cannot find Israel on a map. We elect folks in many areas of this country, if you think about it, there are smaller, uh, smaller population areas, there are rural areas, and somebody's become a successful veterinarian or they become a successful salesman or insurance salesman and they have a, uh, a great business and they're well-known in the community and they get sent to Congress. But it's been 30 years since they had a civics course and they can't even recite the preamble to the Constitution anymore. And so it's important for citizens to talk to them, to communicate with them, to educate them. And this is part of our, uh, our responsibility as, as citizens in this country. As Abraham Lincoln said in the Gettysburg Address, we have a government that is of the people, by the people, and for the people. They work for us. And so when we go to Washington with APAC, we go and talk and have great conversations with our representatives. And it's always easy. Sometimes in the past I haven't stayed because, let's, uh, let's be honest, with Ted Poe was our representative. He's extremely pro-Israel. Now Dan Crenshaw is our representative. Dan is uh, very pro-Israel and very uh, well-educated on the issues, probably more so than almost anybody else in Congress. He's very good. We had a good meeting with him. We also have two uh, senators uh, Senator Cornyn and Senator Cruz, that are very pro-Israel. And that is going to be threatened a lot. We, uh, Senator Cruz just eked by in this last election. 
Uh, you can expect in the 2020 election for Senator Cornyn to have to face a serious challenge to his position. And so uh, we need to be bipartisan because I believe that in a short time, in our lifetime, we will see uh, we will lose at least one Senate seat to the Democrats, and we need to be have open communication, bipartisan communication, to be able to go in and educate whoever uh, gets elected to that position and to communicate and educate them on the issues related to the importance of the U.S.-Israel alliance. So this is important, especially when we realize that very few of our elected representatives have conversations with their constituents. They don't go up there. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I bet very few people uh, here have actually sent emails or called or actually talked with your representative. Uh, I went, had a pastor, a friend of mine, and his daughter went to APAC this year, and he's from a, a little bit north of here. And he came back, he said, wow, that was tremendous. I actually met my congressman and got to talk to him. And that's grassroots American citizenship and American involvement. And so we need to be involved with our representatives. Now, in both of these first two points, I want to make clear that when I go to this, I'm not only there as Robbie Dean, citizen of the United States, but I'm there as Pastor Dean, the leader of a congregation in Houston. I'm representing the congregation, and I'm representing those who are listening online, who are throughout the U.S. And so I am viewed not just as an individual, but as someone who is a leader of a community of Christians. And so that has weight. So when we go uh, to something like APAC, if you go as a Christian, you're not just representing yourself, you're representing the body of Christ. And that has a tremendous impact on those who are there. It is one thing for uh, Jewish citizens to go to Congress and to ask for them to support a U.S.-Israel alliance. Well, you're Jewish. You ought to be doing that, right? But for a Gentile to be taking the time and spending the money to go to D.C. and go talk to their congressional representatives, that carries weight because you and I don't need to be there. You and I are viewed as someone who doesn't have a dog in that hunt. And so that is something that carries weight when they see that there are Gentiles and there are Christians who are coming uh, to stand with the, uh, their Jewish brothers and sisters, fellow citizens. Third reason I go is to be informed. They have a lot of breakout sessions, so we learn a lot about different issues, different things, things that are going on in the Middle East, and so it has to do with being educated and coming to understand better the issues that Israel faces in the Middle East because they're the same issues that we face in the Middle East because of our alliance, and to understand these things because most often, uh, even when you have somewhat objective press, it still doesn't get much below the surface. So when you go to these breakout sessions, you understand a lot of things that are going on. Fourth, as a representative of this congregation and of the body of Christ, to the Jewish community, it carries a lot of weight. I rarely go to any event that is related to APAC or where there are a number of Jews where there aren't those who come up to me and enthusiastically thank me for my support for Israel and the fact that we stand uh, with the Jewish community. And in this age, when we're seeing a rise of anti-Semitism in Congress, we're seeing a rise of anti-Semitism across the nation. There's another increase in anti-Semitic uh, acts this in the United States this last year, and it's even worse in Europe and in England and many other places. Uh, the Jewish community pays attention. They watch us as Christians. That is a nonverbal testimony that we have that we are willing to take the time, the energy, and the effort to go be educated on the issues related 
uh, related to Israel. After almost 1,800 years of Christian anti-Semitism, there's still a lot of barriers between Christians and Jews. And there are a lot of Jews who still view Christian support of Israel with a good deal of suspicion, thinking that we have some sort of uh, underhanded uh, motivations, that we're really just doing this to evangelize them, or we're really just doing this so that Jesus will come back. If we get all the Jews there, Jesus will come back, and then in Armageddon they'll all be killed. That's a weird little anti-Semitic twist. And we laugh because none of us in the Christian community have ever heard that. But that is a major rumor in the Jewish community. And I can go into where it came from, but the first first person to ever articulate anything like it was a 17th century rabbi who was trying to convince Cromwell to let the Jews back into England because, as he put it, God said that he would restore the Jews from all the nations in the earth. You've excluded Jews from England, so the Messiah can't come and take us back to Israel unless you let the Jews into England so that all the nations in the earth will have a Jewish population. Isn't that interesting? Now that's been kind of twisted around. So, But I hear it every time, and I say, you know, I've never heard a Christian say that, but I've heard a lot of Jews say that. But it's just a bold-faced lie. And last of all, we have to recognize, sadly, the times are changing in the U.S. Because of the influx of immigrants, legal and illegal, that the percentage of Jews in our country is diminishing from a high of a little over 3% to now it's under 2%, moving towards 1%. And so if we're going to maintain a in this nation a strong support for Israel, then it has to come from the non-Jewish community. That's one reason APAC uh, 10 years ago started uh, recruiting uh, members from the Gentile community, and that, that has been a major thrust that they have had. And last of all, I want to tell you what our motivation for this is. Our motivation comes straight out of the scriptures. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, by neighbor, I'm not talking about our Jewish neighbors. By neighbors, I'm not talking about uh, Israel as neighbor to the U.S. I'm talking about your next-door neighbor. I'm talking about your coworkers. I'm talking about your friends, your family. I'm talking about everybody we rub shoulders with. There's not a person in this country that hasn't benefited greatly from the U.S.-Israel alliance. If you have a cell phone, that's due to the strong U.S.-Israel alliance. If you have a, a, a laptop, then that, a lot of that technology was developed in Israel. Many, many other things are the result of that U.S.-Israel um, relationship. It is good for all of us as we stand together that we stand against the encroaching darkness in the world. And when that darkness gets pointed, the same enemy that wants to destroy the Jews wants to destroy the Christians. And we need to stand together. It is good for all of us as we stand together to recognize that Israel is not a Jewish issue. Israel is an American issue. Our support for Israel is an American issue, and therefore Americans need to be involved. We live in a world today where evil is growing, and evil now, as always, seeks to destroy liberty, freedom, and life. Every day we face the choice that Moses set before the Israelites before they entered into the land, that they were to choose life or death. The culture of Islam is a culture of death. The culture of secular atheism is a culture of death. And we are to shine forth as lights, and we present life to people. And I'm not just talking about spiritual life, but just all of the unbelievers in America have a richness of their life that they would not have without the influence of biblical Christianity among the founding fathers. So scripture tells us we're to love our neighbor as ourself, and one way we do that is by voting against uh, certain candidates, 
voting against certain policies, voting against certain uh, parties, because their agenda is anti-life, their agenda is anti-liberty, and their agenda is anti-freedom. We have to make that choice uh, that Moses set before the Israelites to choose life rather than death every day. 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2 tells us that we as believers are to are to pray for our leaders. Paul says, Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority. Why? That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. If we want to live a, have a, peaceful culture around us that doesn't hassle us, then we are to pray for our leaders. But just as in every other area of life, it doesn't just stop with prayer. If there are things that we can do, then we need to do them. You don't sit at home and say, well, my grass is getting pretty high. I'm going to start praying that the grass will get cut. You pray that the grass will get cut and that your lawnmower will start, and you go out and you start your lawnmower and you cut the grass. You pray that you will have sufficient uh, resources to handle retirement. And so you do what you not only pray about it, but you do what you can to save money and to invest in all of these other things that we do. That is part of our responsibility. So when we pray that for our leaders, that they will support a legislative agenda that will not be antagonistic to biblical Christianity and all the values of biblical Christianity, then uh, we also need to go to the next step and we need to be in communication. We need to build those bridges. I'm telling you, build them now because the day is coming when we will not have those leaders that we have today. We may have others, but by starting with leaders that are sympathetic and supportive of our beliefs and our views, it will prepare us. It will give us the experience so that we can go and address those leaders that will come down the road that may not be so sympathetic and supportive to a biblical agenda. All of that is why I go to APAC. It's all part of spiritual warfare, which is what we're studying tonight. So open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. And what we're going to talk about tonight is using the sword of the Spirit. Using the sword of the Spirit as it's described in Ephesians chapter 6. We got into this study developing our understanding of 1 Peter 5, 9. Resist him steadfast in the faith because you know that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. To him is the devil who walks about like a roaring lion sinking whom he may devour. What are we to do? We are to resist him. And we've looked at the word studies related to uh, the Greek there that that means to stand firm. It is a defensive posture, not an offensive posture. We're not going out to beat up the devil, to stomp on the devil, to take advantage of the devil, and to uh, destroy the works of the devil. We are to stand firm. It is a defensive position. And so we develop from that how what the Bible teaches about victory and temptation. Talked about how uh, we started off with Job talking about how we get tests. There's all kinds of tests in life. Job's tests, we know, were initiated by Satan. When I was gone to Tucson this last week, I got a little insight that there's a way in which we can discern whether the tests that we're facing come from Satan or whether they just come from, well, the fallen world around us. I got out there, and something I needed was missing a part. And so I needed to get that part desperately. 
And so I got on the internet and I did a little search and found a place where I could get that part, called them up, and it was about 15 minutes away. And so I was able to go over there, get the part, come home. It cost me less than $50, and it took less than an hour from the time I discovered the problem to the time I was back home. I decided that if Satan's involved, it's going to take more than an hour, and it's going to cost more than $50 to solve your problem. (laughs) Just being a little facetious. But there is a... I think an element of truth to that, that when you look at the way in which Satan attacked Job, the way Satan attacked our Lord Jesus Christ, the way we know in other situations where Satan attacked, that the consequences are much more egregious than just the simple problems that we face sometimes that are easily resolved. Every temptation is really a test. It's a test to see if we're going to respond by applying the Word of God or whether we are going to try to handle it on our own. As we looked at First Peter 5, 9, to resist him, the passage that teaches that is in Ephesians 5, or 6, 10, and following related to the armor of the Lord. I just want to do a little review quickly. Paul begins this by saying, Finally, my brethren... Be strengthened by means of the Lord and by means of his mighty power. It is God who strengthens us. God is our mighty tower. He is our refuge. He is our rock. All of these metaphors that we read in the Psalms are true for us. We get our protection, our defense from God. And so he supplies what we need. We need to rest in that. And just as Peter says to resist, we see in three other passages this same emphasis, uh, or two other passages, Ephesians 6.13, and that whole section uses the two words that we'll look at in a minute, uh, to resist. We are to take up the full armor of God. Now notice this is addressed to believers. Uh, So taking up the full armor here isn't talking about positional truth, that's which we have in Christ, it's talking about experiential application, learning what these uh, pieces of armor are all about and how to properly use them in our uh, spiritual defense. James 4, 7 says, this is related to authority orientation. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. The biggest threat to every spiritual life in this room and in this country is arrogance. When we are arrogant, we're not submitting to God. We are uh, trying to get God to conform to our wishes, our desires, and our opinions. Uh, We need to submit to God. That's genuine humility. And resist the devil, and he will flee from us. And then, of course, the passage we're studying in 1 Peter 5, 9. I've pointed out in Ephesians 6, 11, 13, and 14, you have these words, histemi and antistemi, okay? The antistemi is just histemi with a preposition put in front of it. They all have to do with, with defense, standing still, holding your position, resisting, opposing. It is not, they're not terms that are used in the military for attacking, and we are to stand firm against the schemes of the devil, his cunning, his deception. We can't see it. We're like Job. Job never had a clue what was going on in heaven when he was going through his test. That was probably revealed to him much later if, if uh, he is the author of the book of Job. We are to stand firm. Because, uh, this is what Paul says in verse 12. Our struggle is not against f- flesh and blood, but against invisible forces. That's why Donald Gray Barnhouse in his great classic entitled it The Invisible War. Great classic on spiritual warfare and the angelic conflict. Ephesians 6.13 says we are to be able to resist in the evil day. That's the day in which we're tested and having done everything to stand firm. We put on the breastplate of righteousness. It supports the, it protects the torso, which is where in Hebrew thought 
uh, all of our emotions are located. They're related to the organs in the body. So uh, we've put on the breastplate of righteousness. Everything is connected together through the the belt, which is the belt of truth. That comes from Scripture. We have to learn Scripture. That's how we're sanctified. That's how we're strengthened. The foundation comes from our our shoes. Our feet are shod with the um, found with the preparation of the gospel of peace. That's what gives us the ability to dig in and stand firm. The Roman soldiers had these big hobnails in their soles that allowed them to dig down uh, like cleats in the ground. Um, also, we are to take up the shield of faith. That is the shield of trust. We need to develop our use of the faith rest drill trusting God, applying promises, and using that when we face any kind of test. And then above, uh, and then we are to take the helmet of salvation, that is understanding God's plan of salvation, all three phases of salvation, phase one, phase two, and phase three. Everything is working towards that ultimate phase three glorification. This is our personal sense of eternal destiny that should motivate us in how we live today. And then we uh, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This is the Machaira. We see it in front of the pulpit. It's the, uh, it, it could be used offensively or defensively, but because the whole context here is talking about defense, it's talking about how we defend ourselves against a, a, an attack from Satan, and it's through the sword of the Spirit, which is identified as the Word of God. And that's significant that it's not the logos of God here. It is the rhema of God. That is the applied, the spoken, or the thought uh, Word of God. It's when we claim promises, not just uh, not just say principles, but promises. We're going to look today at... Uh, at Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4 gives us three times when Jesus is tested by Satan, and he doesn't counter by saying, well, this is the theology. Or he doesn't say, well, according to the doctrine of such and such, point number four says he doesn't do that. He quotes the scripture. This tells us the importance of what is stated by the psalmist in Psalm 119.11, Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Jesus prayed to the Father and said, Sanctify them in truth. That which sets us apart, that which strengthens us, that which matures us is the word of God. Uh, Sanctify them in truth or by means of truth, thy word is truth. And so to understand the Word of God, we have to see how Jesus used it. He gives us this example in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Now, a couple of things I want to say about this. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested. I would prefer to put it that way, tested by the devil. We'll talk about some of the words there in just just a minute. God the Holy Spirit led Jesus to a place where he would be tested. God allows the believer to be tested. This is James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. God wants us to grow and mature, and so he tests us. He allows us to be tested so that we can apply what we've learned and so that we can grow. A little bit about the situation here. This immediately follows Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist. He's baptized as an inauguration of his public ministry. He is recognized as such by God the Father who speaks from heaven audibly 
Uh, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Everybody there could heard it. If they had had their MP3 recorder, they could have recorded it for posterity. Everybody heard it. It, it was an audible thing. It wasn't something that just that they heard just in their minds. It was ob- objective. And immediately after the inauguration of his ministry, Jesus is tested. He's evaluated in order to demonstrate not his failures. That's often what we think of when we think of a test or failure is to find out what we don't know or what we do wrong. It's to show his qualities, to show his qualifications to be the Messiah, that he passes all of the tests with flying colors. He's taken out into the wilderness, and here is the map. The area that it, it, where he was baptized is the small circle. This has been uh, documented through archaeology and knowledge of, uh, of the ancient sites. And so he goes into this God-forsaken wilderness up here outside of Jericho. Jericho is located just to the lower right of that larger red circle. And uh, even today, if you go into Jericho, it's uh, this Mount of Temptation is turned into a tourist attraction. And so one of my favorite places is the Mount of Temptation restaurant in Jericho. Notice it's coffee shop and ice cream bar. So, and they did have Magnum bars there, by the way. So this is what it, where it's located, and you can see from this slide that it's not the most attractive mountainous terrain. It is dry desert. And here is an aerial shot of this same area looking, uh, looking from the west. So the horizon across the way is uh, over here is Jordan, and then down here you have the Jordan River Valley, and down just below here, this area where the where the buildings are and the homes are, that's uh, that's the modern city of Jericho. So this is where Jesus spent his time. He goes forty days without eating. The text makes that clear. Now Moses, when Moses went up on Mount Sinai, he did not drink or he did not eat or drink for those forty days. That was a, a miracle. But here Jesus uh, fasted. Uh, he, somehow he had water. Uh, because that's the text does not make a point out of that at all. So you can see it's not the most welcoming, it's not the most comfortable, and more than likely he was there in the winter as a po- because early on he goes to a, a Passover, uh, according to the Gospel of John, at the end of uh, chapter 2. Jesus is going to Jerusalem for the Passover, and it follows not long after he's baptized. So if I'm going to go into this part of the world and go out into the wilderness here, I sure would prefer to go there in January and February because there will be some rain than to go there in July or or August. So uh, here is that area. They even have a monastery here called the Monastery of Temptation. So Jesus is led up by the Holy Spirit. It's an heiress passive. That means he's not actively engaged in this. It is the Holy Spirit who is in charge, and the Holy Spirit is leading him uh, into the wilderness where the uh, testing will take place uh, by the devil. And so he's he's led up there. Now, Mark puts it a little differently in Mark 1, 12 and 13. Immediately, this is Mark is impatient. He was young; he's always in a hurry. Immediately, Jesus did this, and then immediately Jesus did that, and then immediately Jesus did this. And you're just—if you read Mark in one sitting, you're out of breath by the time you get to the end because they're constantly in motion. Uh, immediately, the Spirit drove him. Look at that word um, to s- impel somebody. It's a much stronger word than simply leading him. It is impelling him. The Holy Spirit is really pushing Jesus. This is the next step in the plan of God for you. And he's in the wilderness for 40 days, tested by Satan, and was with the wild beast, and the angels ministered to him. Now, the angels are not enabling him to survive. 
This comes, we know, from comparing with the others at the end of the time, not at the beginning or throughout. In Luke 4, 1, we read, Then Jesus, uh, having been filled by the Holy Spirit, and this is an important word, having been filled by the Holy Spirit, uh, it's the wor- or filled, it is the word play race, excuse me, play race, which has the idea, it's not, a, excuse me, I was interpreting that on the basis of the English, it's not a participle, it is a, an adjective, and it is full, uh, should be translated full of the Spirit. Now, we often think that when it says, anytime you have full or filled with Spirit, we tend to think that means like Ephesians 5.18. But I've put up here on the screen that, that, that in Ephesians 5.18 we have the phrase in to pneumati. In is the preposition by means of. In plus the dative is instrumental. By means of the Spirit. That is a totally different concept than what we have here. There it is a different word. It is the word um, uh, plerao. Here we have the word that's related to the verb pimplemi. Pimplemi and play race do not talk about the spiritual life experience of being filled by means of the Spirit. They're related words. But when you carefully exegete the passages where play race is used or pimplemi is used, it, 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 the play race describes someone who is spiritually mature. And I'll show you a couple of examples of that in just a minute. Pimplemi seems to be associated with someone who then articulates something that may be the result of revelation or inspiration. When Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, speaks after he has been struck dumb for these various months, he's mute since uh, the angel's announcement that his wife, who's been, um, has not been able to have a child, is going to be pregnant, and he didn't believe it, so the angel uh, struck him mute until the birth of the child. Once John was born, he praises God and says he was pimplemi, full of the Spirit. Same with Mary. Mary then voices her, what is called the Magnificat, the hymn of praise of Mary. It says Mary was full of the Spirit. It's the same word. It's not the same word that we have in Ephesians 5.18. And so they indicate different things. Here when we have the adjective full of something, that is used to describe somebody's character. And so here it's the idea of, of, of being spiritual, spiritually mature. And uh, while we have Luke 4, 2 up here, it says here that, uh, that he is, uh, he's led, excuse me, in 4, 1, he's led by the Spirit. This is an imperfect tense in the Greek, which means this is continuous, repeated action. So day in and day out, he's led by the Spirit uh, in the wilderness. But when we talk about this phrase, full of the Spirit, we have a statement here in Acts 13 related to, uh, I believe that's Simon, that he's full of all deceit and fraud. That's describing his character. It's just a, a, a semitism that was used uh, to dis- an idiom that's used to describe somebody's character. They're deceitful and they're fraudulent. In Acts 6 5, it's used in a positive sense to describe Stephen. He's a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Doesn't mean he's filled with this. If you're filled with the Spirit, you can lose that when you sin, right? The Holy Spirit's no longer filling you. But this is describing the man's character. It's got a double object. He's full of faith. He's full of the Spirit. He is a man who is strong in his faith, and he has matured spiritually. Uh, Stephen, in verse 8, is said to be full of grace and power. In other words, he's characterized by grace and power because of his spiritual maturity. So Jesus is led by the Spirit continuously into the wilderness. 
so that he will be tested. Now, there's two ways in which we talk about testing. Whenever you hear the word temptation, when I hear the word temptation, we think of somebody who gets sucked into wrong behavior, or maybe it's just behavior they, uh, they, that goes against what they desired. You get up in the morning, you made a commitment to yourself, and I get up in the morning, I'm going to go exercise. The next morning, you didn't sleep so well. That bed just draws you back to it, and you're just not going to go run or walk or do whatever it is you do to exercise. You have succumbed to that temptation, that draw, that attraction to do that which you did not intend to do. Uh, that's the second meaning up there, enticing someone to evil. But the basic meaning is to test somebody, to provide an opportunity where either you're going to do the right thing or you're going to do the wrong thing. It's, that's the objective sense of this. Therefore, Jesus, in this sense, can be tested, but because he is undiminished deity, he cannot be attracted to evil, so there's no. He doesn't have a sin nature. There's no internal draw. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, they are not attracted to sin and evil as they were after they had a sin nature. So you and I have a sin nature that is like a big magnet attracting iron uh, filings to itself. We have this sin nature that attracts sin to itself. We like it. We have an affinity for it. We have a nature that loves sin. That is our default position. But because we are church-age believers, the power of that sin nature has been broken. It still has that attraction there, but we can say no to it, which was really not possible, according to Scripture, in the Old Testament. So Jesus is going to be tested. He's going to have three opportunities there to demonstrate his reliance upon God's provision to solve his problem and uh, to use the word of God in the right way. So verse 2, we're told when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Now, I don't think anybody here has ever gone that long without food. Uh, I was on a thing one time like a Christian Outward Bound camp with Wheaton College where we had to fast for three days. And the first day was a little tough, but you're out in by yourself in a tent. We were right on the shore of Lake Superior, and there really wasn't any way to go get food. Plus, we were threatened within an inch of our lives that if we snuck any food along, then the bears would sniff it out and we would probably wake up with an unwelcome visitor in our tent in the middle of the night. So nobody took any food with them. By the end of the first day into the beginning of the second day, our appetite was diminished. That's what you'll read in in literature. By the time we got to the third day, you really didn't have much of an appetite at all. It goes away. And I've been told that if you go 40 days, then around the 39th or 40th day, the appetite starts coming back with a vengeance because now it's it's important for you to uh, start eating again. So Jesus had fasted 40 days and 40 nights. He would be tired. He would be physically drained due to the lack of nourishment. Uh, there would be many other uh, uh, effects of the fasting that would make it easy for him to succumb to a temptation of food, and so we get um, uh, we get Satan coming along just at the right time. He wasn't there the first forty days. Whatever tests there were that would go along with the temp- with the uh, lack of food. We're not coming from Satan. So this is just coming from the limitations of a human body. Psalm 35.13 expresses the key principle here, is that Jesus is humbled. That means he is submitted to the plan of God and the authority of God, and he is not going to step out and try to solve his problem by being independent of God's desire, by being independent of God's will. He is submissive to the plan of God, and that's the idea of humility. 
Uh, David writes here in Psalm thirty-five, thirteen. But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled myself. And so he is. Uh, he when when the people were sick, he put on sackcloth. He prayed. This was a, an overt expression of his internal mental attitude of grace orientation and submission to divine authority. He humbled himself with fasting. Now, there's something interesting. We often run into people who have somewhat glorified the idea of fasting. There's nothing about going without food that makes you more or less spiritual. There's nothing about fasting that somehow impresses God to answer your prayers more uh, effectively. Uh, You've got to think about the ancient world. Fasting meant that all of your energy, all of your efforts, all of your time could be devoted to prayer. If you had to think about preparing a meal, it would take a lot of time. Uh, You had to go build a fire if you were going to cook anything. You couldn't just go open the refrigerator and take out a microwave dinner, pop it in the microwave for five minutes and eat. You would have to do a lot more than that. You'd have to build a fire. You'd have to get the water. You'd have to clean your pots and pans and put water in there, boil it or cook it or do whatever you were going to do. If you involved animal flesh, you'd have to kill the animal, skin the animal, prepare the flesh, do all of that. That takes a lot of time and energy, which is a distraction from your focus, which is on prayer. So fasting had a function and a purpose that is not necessarily part of our modern uh, modern scenario. Furthermore, it was also a spiritual discipline that would enhance your focus upon the Lord. When you eat, I don't know, sometime when I turned around 40, late 30s, early 40, I discovered that if I had dessert at lunch, I wouldn't get a lot of work done in the afternoon that if we eat certain things at certain times, then it takes so much away from our mental activity because all the blood and everything goes to our digestive tract to take care of what we've eaten that we're just not as sharp and focused as we, as we were. So that's all has to do with fasting. There's only one fast that is mentioned in the Scripture. And that fasting has to do with the Day of Atonement. But it doesn't use the word fasting there, uh, which is why I miss this several times when I've taught on this and I look for the word fasting, it's not there. Uh, The normal word for fasting is the word tsom, T-S-O-M, it's a tsadi there, uh, but uses the word anah, which is often translated deny yourself. And it's a more general term. But that's the only time there is a mandate for a fast is on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement. So Yom Kippur would begin with sundown the night before, so you'd probably have dinner a little bit early before the sun goes down. You wouldn't eat any that evening, overnight, the next morning you get up. You don't have anything to eat all day, and this is what is practiced in the Jewish community today, until you get to sundown the next night, and then you have a meal that is called breaking the fast. And that takes place uh, almost every year. I'm invited to go to uh, some Jewish friends for breaking the fast evening. And when I first saw that, I thought it was breakfast at Eight o'clock, that's awfully early to get up and go meet a bunch of people. And then I realized a little bit more, so I uh, came to understand that. So we, uh, they would break the fast. That's the only biblically mandated fast. What we see is a practice, and we always have to recognize the biblical principle of interpretation that just because somebody did something that doesn't mean that we should do it. In other words, the description of what somebody did isn't prescribing the activity. Just because they did something a certain way doesn't mean that this is a command for all of us to do that the same way. And unfortunately, that is how that is taken. So 
Now we come to the first temptation, Matthew chapter 4, verse 3. And I'm going to go ahead and stop here so we can take all three of the temptations together, and we'll cover that next Thursday night. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to uh, reflect on several things this evening. One is just um, your, your grace in providing us a national environment, a legal environment, where we are free to study your word, to worship you, to tell others about our Savior without free of interference from the government. Although there are so many threats today, there are those who seek to destroy that, and we pray that we might continue to have leaders that and and judges that would protect those rights and that these decisions that have been made in numerous cases where there have been those who have had their uh, religious practice restricted, we pray that, that in those court cases that truth would prevail and that righteousness would prevail because if the First Amendment doesn't just guarantee that we have the right to assemble in a local church and study your word, but we have the right to put into practice that which we believe in the marketplace, the public marketplace of ideas. And so, Father, that has always been recognized as such in the history of this nation, and we're so thankful that we have that, and we pray for our leaders that that might continue that we might live in an environment where, as with regards to the gospel and our Christian faith, we might be at peace in order that we might continue to grow and apply your word. Father, we also pray for us because we face testing every day, and we need to understand and be able to conscientiously identify when we are being tested and respond uh, correctly with the application of your word and that we might recognize that we are to stand firm. And we do that by putting on the full armor that you have provided for us. And so, Father, we pray that we might go back and listen and think through what we have learned here and apply it in our lives. And, Father, we continue to pray for uh, Israel. We pray for their protection, wisdom for their leaders. We understand where prophecy is going, but we're, we know that we're not in the trib, trib yet, so... We're outside of that, but with these rockets that are coming down from, from Gaza, it's a very complex, difficult situation. We pray that you would give the leaders their wisdom, but we know that you are also working things out in terms of the ultimate scenario. And we pray all of these things now in Christ's name. Amen.